This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 301. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. Joining, joined today, I am joined, I am also joining Matthew Marister. That's right. <laughs> Matthew, you're in charge today. How about that? Yeah, you're, you're I don't on the think hot so. seat. No, no, I, I'm, I'm good as the wingman, man. I'll be your goose. <laughs> no goose dies, but that's good. I'm good with goose. Yeah, but, you know, it's for a noble cause. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, right on, brother. Thanks for joining me here today. And uh, we, today is our industry news edition of the podcast, uh, coming to you live from Denver, Colorado, and some crazy town in Ohio, Columbus. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm actually in Hilliard, so it's just a little bit west of the city, but yeah, Columbus. Suburbs. Suburb, <laughs> suburbia, yuppie. Yeah, I'm technically also not in Denver. Since you're getting all technical on me, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the West suburbs. So, hey, uh, today we are talking about some great news stories. We have a, a couple of interesting ones. Let me preview those. Uh, we're going to talk about a, a story that came out this last week. It was actually a study that was done. And, it, it, you know, if you read this study, and, and I wish I had a little more time to really dive deep into it, but I just haven't had the time. But if you read the study, they, they would have you believe that, you know, there's been a lot of thought and effort put into this. And it's, you know, the people behind it are really super smart. But I think they overlook some really critical aspects. And there are definitely some limitations to that study that supposedly suggests mass shootings happen at a, more, at a greater rate in states where gun control laws are more lax are less restricted. And uh, I I don't think it's quite that simple. Okay. So anyway, also we're going to talk about uh, some of your favorite gun companies in the industry and where some of their political contributions go. Matthew dug deep and did a whole bunch of research on this. It kind of came about because of the whole Benchmade fiasco. And if you're not familiar with what happened there, well, we're going to talk about that as well. So, uh, and then a bunch of other great stories, plus an important recall notice. If you are the owner of a Smith and Wesson MMP fifteen twenty two, that's the uh, twenty two long rifle version of the MMP fifteen. There's been, there's a recall on that, so and we'll we'll get into the details on that, and that's important to know. So we're getting the word out. So today's episode, by the way, is made possible and brought to you by, first of all, Ammo Supply Warehouse. Uh, We are so pleased to be partnered up with the guys over there at uh, Ammo Supply Warehouse. You can find them at AmmoSupplyWarehouse.com. And Guardian Nation members, uh, if you're new to the podcast here, that is a special membership that we have here at ConcealedCarry.com and the Concealed Carry Podcast. Guardian Nation members save an additional 5% off of purchases made at AmmoSupplyWarehouse.com. So you might want to look at a Guardian Nation to save a little more, and it can add up in a big way, especially if you if you buy ammo like I do. 5% makes a difference. Also, today's episode made possible and brought to you by CCW Safe. It's the first time we've ever mentioned CCW Safe as, a, as an episode sponsor. Uh, CCW Safe is a competitor, actually, to USCCA, uh, so you may... may uh, be, or you're more likely familiar with USCCA. Uh, they're both great companies. And they both have a lot great to offer. CCW Safe does some really amazing things. You're going to want to look into CCW Safe uh, as an option if you're looking to some sort of self-defense insurance. I, I have met personally with the uh, founders and owners of the company. They are good people, wonderful people that care tremendously about protecting like-minded individuals like yourself and like us here. Uh, in fact, some of the founders used to be cops, uh, and they, they've been in some some pretty sticky situations, you know, having to defend even themselves uh, in officer-involved shootings, and they wanted to create a product that extended to, to anybody to defend people that had to defend themselves, right? But now they have to fight the other battle that, that occurs after you pull or use your gun in self-defense. Uh, and that is the legal battle, of course. So go to concealedcarry.com forward slash ccwsafe to learn more about ccwsafe. All righty. Um, yeah. Matthew. Yes, sir. You know, once we get to the sponsor stuff, you're in charge, I told you. So you got to keep us on track today, buddy. <laughs> Typically, yeah. when we get to the sponsor messages, what, what, what comes next? Well, I think everybody knows the next 
little uh, series here is the Andrew Branca Law Self-Defense Case of the Week. Ooh, I like how you said that. I think uh, we'll have to have you do that from, from now on. <laughs> All righty. So here we go, bringing to you this week's Case of the Week, dealing with guns versus cars, a legal analysis. This case of the week is on a fight in Charlotte, North Carolina, between two men, one of whom was armed with a gun and the other armed with a car. You can read the news report on this by clicking on the link in the text version of this case of the week at lawselfdefense.com forward slash blog. The man armed with a gun was a law enforcement officer investigating a known bad guy. Officers sought to make contact with the bad guy at a local bar after hearing the bad guy would be there performing as a rapper. As the officers approached the bar, they were informed that the bad guy had armed himself with a gun. They observed the bad guy returning to his car and ordered him to stop. The bad guy ignored them and got in the driver's seat of the car. The officer in question walked in front of the car wearing a green vest labeled police, gun in hand. The bad guy accelerated his car into the officer, breaking the officer's leg and throwing the officer onto the hood of the vehicle. The bad guy then accelerated the car again, in response to which the officer fired a single round through the windshield of the vehicle. That round struck the bad guy in the neck, causing a mortal injury. As an aside, it's worth noting that this fatal round to the neck did not immediately neutralize the bad guy. Rather, the bad guy exited the car, cursed at the surrounding officers for several seconds, then dropped to his knees. He would actually die only later. It's always worth keeping in mind how limited is the stopping power of most CCW suitable handguns. And to note that even a quote-unquote good hit may not immediately neutralize a deadly force threat. Back to this case, the events all occurred last August, but it wasn't until yesterday that the local district attorney announced that there would be no charges against the officer for the shooting death of the bad guy on the basis that the officer's use of deadly force was lawful self-defense. And that certainly seems like the right call based upon the laws of self-defense. In fact, let's take this opportunity to step through the elements of the officer's self-defense claim. You'll recall the elements of a claim of self-defense are up to five in number. Those are innocence, eminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. The element of innocence asks who was the initial aggressor in the fight. The initial aggressor in the fight cannot claim self-defense, so it matters here whether that was the officer or whether it was the bad guy. Now, if the good guy here were not an officer, one might attack his claim of self-defense on the element of innocence on the basis that he'd placed himself in front of the bad guy's car with a gun in his hand, and that such conduct was the initial act of physical aggression in this conflict. If so, the element of innocence would be lost and self-defense would be lost. Here, however, it appears that the officer had reasonable suspicion to at least stop and question the bad guy in a context in which the bad guy was reasonably believed and, in fact, would be discovered to have just armed himself with a gun. And thus, the officer's threat of force was lawful. Where the officer's threat of force was lawful, it is the bad guy's conduct in accelerating his car at and striking the officer that constitutes the initial act of physical aggression. Point on the element of innocence, the officer. What about imminence? Was the officer facing an imminent threat, a threat about to be carried out right now, or only a perspective or speculative threat? If the threat's not imminent, the use of force against it is not lawful self-defense. Clearly, however, here, the threat was not just imminent, it was actually taking place. So the point on the element of imminence, to the officer. What about the element of proportionality? Was the officer's use of deadly defensive force, firing his handgun, disproportional to the threat he faced? An unlawful deadly force threat is sufficient to justify the use of deadly defensive force in the context of this element of proportionality. So the question is, was the officer facing a deadly force threat? Keep in mind, deadly force includes not just force that can kill, but also force that can cause grave bodily injury or serious bodily harm or any similar phrase states may choose. Even if we were to doubt that the bad guy's car could readily cause death, it was clearly capable of causing grave bodily injury because it had already broken the officer's leg. 
Faced with a deadly force threat then, the officer's use of deadly defensive force was a proportional response. Point on proportionality, the officer. Avoidance. Did the officer violate some existing legal duty to retreat? Well, only about 13 states impose a generalized legal duty to retreat in the first place, and North Carolina is not among them, at least not in the context of facing a deadly force threat. Even if there had been a generalized duty to retreat, however, the officer would be relieved of that generalized duty to retreat if necessary for the performance of his duty as a law enforcement officer. And that was clearly the case here. Point on the element of avoidance, the officer. What about the element of reasonableness? Was the officer's perception of each of the above circumstances and elements a reasonable perception? That is, did the officer genuinely and in good faith believe that he was facing an imminent threat of unlawful deadly force? That is his subjective perception. And would a reasonable and prudent person in his position have shared this belief? That is objective reasonableness. Frankly, I don't see a rational argument that can be made contrary to the officer's perception being reasonable under these circumstances, the point on the element of reasonableness to the officer. So all the potential required five elements of a self-defense claim, innocence, eminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness are present in favor of the officer. That is a lawful use of defensive force in self-defense. And folks, that's how the magic is created, a self-defense legal analysis presented to you in a nutshell. If you enjoyed this case of the week, I urge you to take a look at the Law of Self-Defense blog, the premier source for authoritative self-defense law education and insight. There's always free content available, as well as premium content for the Law of Self-Defense community. Just point your browser to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash blog. Remember, you carry a gun so you're hard to kill. Know the law so you're hard to convict. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. There you have it. Another uh, great case from Andrew Branca of the Law of Self-Defense. Uh, th- obviously, this was an incident, an incident that involved an officer uh, dealing with this vehicle and the potential threat thereof uh, committed by that driver. But I think a lot of the analysis that he offered in that uh, case of the week is applicable also to many of the rest of us. Now, it is somewhat unusual for civilians to find themselves in a circumstance where they have to use a gun against somebody in a vehicle. Um, there's, it just doesn't happen that often now. Not that it doesn't happen, not that it can't happen. And certainly we've even covered some justified save stories on this podcast where someone has had to, uh, you know, fire at a vehicle in self-defense. Uh, and I should say at a person in that vehicle, right? It's not the vehicle. We're not trying to stop the vehicle. We've also shared stories. Actually, probably more of these occur than the other way around where someone tries to shoot the tires of the vehicle and, you know, try to stop someone from making an escape, typically from a crime that doesn't really justify the use of deadly force, such as a robbery or a burglary, a shoplifter, that sort of thing. Where I remember there was one in Texas where a woman was charged because she shot at the vehicle, at the tires of a vehicle that was leaving the scene of a shoplifting crime, uh, I believe com- committed it to Walmart. And uh, I can't remember if someone got injured in that uh, or not, but that's beside the point. She used deadly force in a situation that doesn't really warrant it. When we're shooting at the vehicle as it's trying, you know, as, as, as it's leaving, that's a whole other thing from this guy suddenly was trying to run at me with his vehicle and thus I shot in self-defense. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, thought no, you were going to say something. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I thought you had another point. Um, but yeah, I, you know what? And, and I, I like how he broke it down and said, you know, the, the, how, how it would be different for a concealed carrier, but I'm going to, I'm going to look at it one other, one other twist here on this and this, and I think it applies also to concealed carriers as well. Um, we, we, most of the time we put ourselves in the position of the person doing the shooting, right? Like the, the, the law enforcement officer in this case, but place yourself in the position of the dude that was supposedly being stopped by the police, the rapper or whatever he was. Um, and you see somebody who may, and, and this is the issue where 
when police have to really be careful about where they execute um, high risk vehicle stops or try to take people in, into custody. And if they don't have marked vehicles or, or very recognizable uniforms, because we all know that people can easily get a vest that says police on it, right? Or, or get a tack vest, slap a patch on there that says police. And it doesn't always necessarily mean they're police. Um, and so if you put yourself in the position of the person who was in the car, and a reasonable excuse, I mean, if he were alive to, to make this argument would be, hey, I didn't know that these were really police officers. I just came out of a rap contest or a rap venue and, you know, I'm having beef with this other gang. And, and you know, I thought that these were people that were going to just shoot me up um, And whether or not that's a legitimate case. It could be argued. I mean, if I was his defense attorney, that's what I, I would argue. Yeah. Um, but we think about that also in the context of you pull your gun out on somebody and, and you don't have justification to use that gun. You're using it as a de-escalation tool. Well, that person that you might be pulling the gun out on might believe that you are going to shoot them, right? I mean, naturally so. And they might be a concealed carrier. And so if you're pulling the gun out as a de-escalation tool, not actually appropriate in this situation to apply deadly force. And this person now has a legitimate reason to use deadly force against you. So think about, you know, everything that's going on in, in the scenario and all the different angles. So, so you can kind of not fall into the trap of like, well, I'm the only one in this fight with a gun and I, you know, I'm going to deescalate it because that person might see you as the aggressor at that point. So yep, it's just a different twist. I thought. Absolutely. No, good, good thoughts there for sure. Anyway, so uh, I, I think it's helpful though, and I, that's that's one of the things I appreciate about Andrew Branca and how he breaks down cases like this and goes through the elements of self-defense. And in doing that, we can really, I think, see what kind of thought needs to go into. Uh, and obviously, we recognize that some of these situations happen so quickly. It's not like we have time to, to really reason a lot, you know, in our mind in a split second, which is why we need to be prepared ahead of time. We need to have a good, solid understanding of the laws and what self-defense really means before we ever find ourselves in a, in a situation like that. So that's why we are huge advocates here at concealedcarry.com and the Concealed Carry Podcast for educating yourself on the laws of self-defense. Do that by getting Andrew's book, read the law of self-defense, take one of his courses. He has online courses you can take. He, he occasionally does these live webinar versions of the courses. Uh, he has so many resources at law of self at yeah, lawofselfdefense.com. And uh, so I encourage you definitely to give him a look. Uh, we appreciate him for bringing these cases of the week to a, to the podcast each week. Alrighty. So, and apparently I had a, it's a good thing we got that through because I play the case of the week from my iPad and my iPad also decided to restart. So that was perfect timing. <laughs> um, all right. Jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so let's jump into this week's industry news. Uh, let's see here. Our first story comes from time.com. Boy, this one was uh, really a shocker. Because this mm -hmm. just does not happen that frequently. New York City police officer arrested for making and selling guns. Uh, now, there's an image here, and you can see this, that shows all of these guns that they confiscated from this guy. And, you know, there, there's there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's a, it's, it's a nice variety of guns, actually. We've got hunting rifles. We've got some old, you know, like World War one era rifles. We got ARs, pistols of all sorts. You know, lever. Well, maybe that's, no. There is a lever action right in there somewhere too. So revolvers. I mean, all kinds of stuff they confiscated from this guy. And he actually didn't work for NYPD, but he was a New York City Department of Environmental Protection officer, uh, which is still a, a sworn certified officer in, in the state of New York. And he, here's the thing. He was manufacturing guns at his upstate home and selling them to motorcycle gang members. What's up with that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah and you know what was weird was um, it's, you know, you mentioned it's the New York City Department of Environmental Protection Police. So I was like, what the heck is this? Is this code enforcement or what? Because I, I, I've never heard of it before. And so I did a little research and they're actually part of 
the New York City Police Department, but they're in charge of like uh, the water systems and making sure that, you know, they're not, they don't fall subject to terrorism or something like that, where they destroy the water system. Sure. You know? Um, and so it was pretty interesting. And I, so, so I was thinking like, how are these, these people getting the information uh, to leak? Um, because it says, you know, they've, they, they uh, leak some information on different raids and in a, in a, um, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a ongoing investigation that was going on and, and they leaked it. Uh, this guy leaked it. So I was like, eh, you know, but obviously if they're part of the police department, they probably have access to a lot of that, that information or people that have that information. Um, but you know, for me, I was looking at this and I said, this is the exact reason why, even if you, you, you can never take all the guns away because you, you always have somebody who will monetarily gain or have some sort of power um, to 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 sell guns like illegally. And so, you know, in this case, it's actually somebody who is, you know, a sworn police officer. So in a position of trust. Exactly. So it's not just like, oh, if we just got rid of all the bad guys. No, I mean, there's bad guys in, in every walk of life. So um, this just goes to show you that, you know, you cannot, you, you can't disarm good people, um, and let good people protect them because you, people are people and, and there's bad people that look like good people. And this is one of them. Yeah. It's amazing to me that this, this officer is willing to throw away literally his life and everything that I'm sure he's worked towards uh, over something so stupid. Uh, I just I, I wonder how he even got into this in the first place. Uh, now here's something that's interesting. So it, it, they talk about him manufacturing guns, and actually says here that he assembled dozens of handguns and assault rifles and sold them to individuals who are legally barred from possess possessing such weapons, including members of outlaw motorcycle clubs. Uh, so what I find interesting about that is, and you look at all the guns that, in this image, in this article on time.com, that of uh, guns that they confiscated, like a lot of these are not guns that you just, that, that people are typically able to make. Like a lot of these are, are guns that you buy and, you know, you buy just like they, they are they are as they come, uh, but I I suspect that and they mentioned assault rifles. Uh, yes, I put that in air quotes. Uh, that he assembled that makes sense. You know, he's maybe buying some lower receivers and then he's buying all the other parts and assembling them and handing them off to these these gang members or whatever. Uh, maybe he was building some stuff. Uh, it said he talked about handguns as well, so maybe he was doing some you know, ghost guns, also in your quotes, <laughs> uh, as well. I don't know, but uh, it's just fascinating to me. All right, let's move along. Uh, next up, we have a story from Texomus, Texomus, homepage.com. That is in, an interesting website. Uh, this is uh, Vernon Police Department, located in Vernon, I think this is in Texas, yeah, I, I believe is that. Right? Yeah, it is. It, it would make sense. TexomasHomePage.com. Uh, Vernon Police Department implements new weapon-mounted cameras, uh, and actually, this is something that uh, has come, you know, onto our radar here fairly. Well, we've had some discussions about this recently here at ConcealedCarry.com, just talking about this idea of weapon-mounted cameras. So, obviously, everyone's familiar with the body cams that officers wear. A lot of times those are worn center of chest. Occasionally you see a few that are worn like up on the shoulder lapel. I like those ones because actually you get a really good view when they're when they're worn up closer to the eye level. Uh, usually those center of chest ones, when the officer actually has to draw their gun, the gun's like blocking <laughs> what what the gun's actually aiming at, which is uh one of the one of the big yeah I've always kind of wondered about that like why are we wearing a camera where the most important time for us to be able to see we, we can't because the gun's right in front of the camera so Viridian uh, folks probably are familiar with Viridian uh, they came onto the scene you know a decade or more ago uh, in a big way making these uh, handgun typically weapon mounted lights or not lights but uh, lasers green lasers 
everything about their company and their logo was like green for green lasers. That was their big thing. You basically had Crimson Trace doing everything in red, and you had Viridian doing everything in green. And now there's a little bit of crossover between those brands. But Viridian has been really innovative, and I think that's that's a really cool thing in a company like this because you know they came out with some really solid light options as well a few years back, and now they've created a weapon-mounted light and camera system that mounts on the underneath rail on the on the tactical rail or the Picatinny rail or whatever the accessory rail of your pistol, and you get a tactical light as well as a camera that is automatic automatically activated when drawn from the holster. And this is not only that it's it's compatible with most duty holsters already for light bearing uh, guns. And so this is really cool because when you see the camera footage, you're seeing the view directly from the the the, the gun itself, the firearm. Uh, so now one. Thing I I have yet to really see a whole lot on, and I'd like to maybe even test this is what happens to that view during recoil, and if there's a whole a whole bunch of shutter or whatever that if if an officer fires a lot really rapidly, if you're able to make out detail during that. But I think the technology is really fascinating and has a lot of promise. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, cameras are getting so so much more, you know, so small, so much smaller, and so much more um, like. Uh, pixels and things like that. Right. You know, so like they're getting better and better. Um, so yeah, I, I, I thought the same thing as you, cause in the video, if you watch the video that's attached to the, the article, um, they, they show like the video from the, the camera, but they don't show them shooting, yeah. you know, they show them chasing somebody and, and things like that. Um, which I don't think that this personally, I don't think that if I was a police chief, I wouldn't forego one over the other because, you know, you, you, you draw out your firearm, you, 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 you know, aim in on, on somebody and they take off running. Now, the, you know, you might be chasing them, you holster up and now, you know, you don't have that, that video. So that's where the lapel camera would come in, you know? So I think by using both of them, um, it, it's going to, and, and they even said in, in the, in the story that it's already worked, uh, but, been proven uh, good evidence in, in a few high profile cases that they've had alone. So I think it's awesome technology and, and I, I hope it gets better and better. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with you as far as I don't see this as being a solution that replaces other cam, other, other camera forms, uh, whether that's a dash cam, whether that's something mounted on the body of the officer. I've also seen officers, by the way, that have worn, had cameras that are uh, mounted in their eyeglasses in their eyewear and those are probably even the best of all because you're seeing exactly from the from the perspective of what the officer is seeing uh, that has some limitations obviously techn- technologically i mean you, you can only fit so big of batteries in a in a pair of eyeglasses uh, quality might be an issue because of the size of the camera and the camera lens but uh, you know you can see though here in the very short future i think that the day's going to come where <clears throat> police officers have cameras on their person on their body somewhere <clears throat> they have one on their gun and they have one in their in their patrol car and w- we will get even better views and more data and information and understanding of what's going on in some of these circumstances and i think that's that's a good thing i, I know that when body cams first started to become really a, a thing, there was a, l- a little bit of resistance from some in the law enforcement community, afraid that it was really going to be used against them. And that certainly there's understanding that just because you have a camera view doesn't mean you actually see or understand the full picture of everything that's going on. Uh, but I think it's being shown more often than not that these are being probably more helpful in a lot of these cases of officer-involved shootings and protecting the officer uh, as well as those in, involved, not just the officer. It, it, it really tells a, a pretty good picture, a story a lot of times. Uh, so and so now we've got to, I think, kind of ask the question, is this something that makes sense for those of us in the concealed carry community? And that's something that's interesting to consider and to ponder about. Uh, certainly this technology from Viridian is available to the civilian market even. Uh, so something interesting to, th- to think about. I mean, what do you think about that, Matthew? Yeah. I mean, my, my gut instinct is like, yeah, this would be awesome for concealed carriers. Right. But then I have to step back and look at it and say, okay, the, the rush to judgment on like lapel cameras or somebody videotaping an incident with their phone and only getting one angle 
the the rush to use that as like the the gospel of what happened, right? Like they look at one angle and they're like, yep, this this proves it or this doesn't prove it a hundred percent. That kind of scares me because um, that that view, I mean, depending on how, the, the wide angle of, of the camera, how much it captures and, and everything, and and you know, it, if if it come if it only comes on when you draw, you know, in in, in the I failed to to mention that, or I you might have um, that it also has a, a microphone, so it right, records sound as well. Yeah. So that only comes on when you draw the the, the firearm. So leading up to mm-hmm. the, what happened might not be caught. Right, so like right, the dialogue. Yeah. So what I'm worried about is that like, yeah, it's, it's awesome as a supplemental part of evidence, like to what happened, but like, I'm afraid that people are going to be like, Oh, this is awesome technology. Now it proves everything. And, and all it shows is somebody pulling up a gun and set, you know, 16th of a second later, they're shooting and they're like, Oh, well it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, justified. And it's like, no, you missed like the four minutes of the dude saying like, stop, stop. You know what I mean? So um, that's my only concern, but I think, I definitely think that it's, yep. it's awesome technology and, and, yeah. and, you know, as long as it's realistically used. Yep. Some good comments here from, uh, viewers on Facebook. Uh, Chad says a picture was worth a thousand words might help a CCW or if they had to go to court, maybe, uh, that, that is, that is definitely a possibility. Uh, high caliber concealed carry training LLC says, but is one view better than no view? And I think that that's also, yeah, I think we're definitely saying that here. Craig says, Matthew's exactly right. The camera tells a story, only the one it can see, however. And uh, yeah. And then Jared says, head mounted would be would be good. Yes, absolutely. Did you um, see uh, Evo? Uh, he's a buddy of mine. He, he's law enforcement. He, he uh, put in a little comment about uh, there's a, Amazon has an idea to put mini drones on cops' shoulders. <laughs> so I don't know That's if they awesome. like, like hover around over <laughs> top and just get an aerial view. <laughs> That would be kind of crazy, yeah, for sure. Uh, you said some, you brought up some good points as far as uh, when the microphone actually starts recording stuff. We even see that be an issue with body cameras sometimes because uh, from the time that the body camera is turned on, uh, which depending on the exact camera that's being used, but the most common ones made by Axon, which is the same company that makes Taser, and those have a thirty-second delay from the time that the camera is activated because the camera is actually always like watching. And but it only turns on the microphone and starts recording and saving that file uh, for like the camera sees thirty seconds before and then the, you finally hear the audio kick in, and that's either turned on manually by, by the officer or some are also tied into uh, when they when they make a call uh, on a situation. Uh, so anyway, interesting things to consider there, and and so we'll, we'll just kind of see that as this technology continues to evolve and what it might mean for concealed carriers even as technology gets better, faster, smaller. You know all that stuff. <clears throat> Here's a story uh, that actually I, I broke <clears throat> on our on our site concealedcarry.com. Uh, Benchmade. This is this is a few weeks old, so I get that. But again, we're only doing the industry news once a month now. Benchmade assists local PD with destroying guns. Irks loyal customers. <clears throat> so what happened here is Benchmade is you know which, which is a, a knife company that's uh, quite popular. Uh, I've got a couple of Benchmade knives, and uh, I, I like them actually. Frankly, they're some of my favorite knives. Benchmade is located in Oregon City, Oregon, and the Oregon City Police Department recently had a bunch of guns that had been seized and or confiscated or turned in voluntarily from local citizens that needed to be destroyed because apparently that's their policy and that's how they handle it. They asked Benchmade, who, I mean, this is, Benchmade's probably one of the largest, if not the largest employer in Oregon City. Uh, So, you know, the, I suspect Benchmade has a pretty tight knit, you know, relationship with uh, agencies like the Oregon City Police Department there in the city. As after all, this is a company that's been based in the same small town for like 30, 40 years. So Oregon City PD came to Benchmade, asked them to help in their uh, di- disposal of these weapons, which Benchmade did. This, of course, uh, created quite the outroar or outcry from uh, Second Amendment advocates. And even I myself was a little bit, you know, disgruntled at seeing this, uh, because none of us that are pro two A really like to see good guns just get all out 
destroyed, uh, which is what happened here. So uh, a lot of people calling for a boycott against Benchmade. Um, others started, this caused them to start looking at political donations that Benchmade has made. And there was some information that was dug up where Benchmade had donated some money to some Democratic Party candidates or politicians. And so that, you know, raised the level even further of the outcry uh, against Benchmade. All right, so so that's kind of the the backstory of Benchmade. But uh, Matthew, why don't you kind of you know this prompted you to start digging into some other well known companies in the industry and kind of seeing where they are making their political contributions? Yeah, but first I got to give you credit because um, not you know different than other other uh, people who commented on this, you actually reached out um, to the police department, right? Um, you actually sent them an email. And actually, asked, I, I reached out to Benchmade. Or, I'm sorry, uh, yeah. Benchmade. The police department released a statement themselves, which I think I posted that in the article as well. Uh, but the, yeah, I sent an email to Benchmade and asked for a comment, and they they provided a response. Yeah, and, and I and and that's totally. I mean, I, you know, we, we can we can respond with our our initial you know instincts and stuff. But you you took a step and and you actually reached out and try to get uh, their official stance on it. And I, I I appreciate that. Like you you did that before writing, so um, that's totally cool. And and I I wanted to applaud you for that. Um, but yeah, so what I basically ended up doing was starting to look at like. Um, because it's all open source information. Um, when you give money to a political organization, um, it's all tracked. Uh, uh, campaign finance laws make it, you know, it has to be evident to the public. And so if, if you know, you're giving money to a campaign or a, a, a PAC, which is basically an organization that's designed to collect money for different, uh, to lobby for different um, like uh, different candidates or different, uh, like a political agenda or something like that. So that's where you get your packs and your super packs. So it, it gets very confusing. But what I did was I basically try to break it down into very simple terms that people could could look at. And, and you could take this information for what it's worth. I'm not calling for a boycott on any company um, because of what they, you know, the, the money that they spend. Um you know, a lot of the times the people that are employed by these companies are the ones that end up suffering, you know what I mean? Because they might not be in the same ideology as the the people that are making the decisions to make the donations. So I'm not saying to, to boycott, I'm just saying um, to make wise decisions on where you spend your money if that's interest, if that's of interest to you. Okay. So I broke down basically in three categories. I put companies donating 75% or more of political donations going to Republicans. Then I put um, another category of corporations and organizations that are 50% to 75% go to Republicans. And then I had another uh, tier that was 50% or fewer that go to Republicans. So basically giving more of their political donations to Democrats. Um, Let's be clear about something. One thing really quick, uh, Matthew, and that is that uh, our official stance here at the Concealed Carry podcast is we don't endorse or side necessarily with any particular political party uh, or even candidates for that matter. Uh, We're focused on the guns and second amendment and what that means. Uh, You know, it's and we recognize also too that we have a lot of listeners and gun owners that might identify or even be registered members of the Democratic Party, and that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. We recognize there are things that the Republican Party does that drives guys like me up a wall, even as it relates to Second Amendment issues. There's folks that are independent, of course, and consider themselves that or libertarian or whatever it is. It's just just know that the reason why why we're talking about this and identifying by party and these donations, because that's oftentimes how those donations are made and, and how we might kind of keep track of things. And also we recognize that generally speaking, the Republican party is a lot more two way friendly and less likely to pass anti-gun laws. And the democratic party very well known, very well advertised because the house is, is trying to do this right now, pass anti-gun legislation. So, that's that's why this isn't that's what we're trying to point out here is that the way we read this is we have guns that are kind of in the two-way space they're in the 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 gun industry and making contributions to candidates or parties that aren't exactly friendly a lot of the time to the second amendment so right. that's why that's why it's that's why we're talking about what we're, what we're talking about here 
Yeah. And to, to, to just to dive in deeper than that, like there are definitely Republicans that are anti-gun and there are definitely Democrats that are more gun friendly based on their location and what's going on. And you might be a company that's, that's in California and you only have two Democratic senators running, right? And so you choose to give a political donation to a Democrat that is less anti-gun than the other one. So it, it it's not a cut and dry like, hey, you gave to a Democrat, so that means you are you know, for Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton's policies or whatnot, or, you know, a Republican, it, 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 it's not that, but I just broke it down that way because, you know, uh, because of all those reasons that you said. So just real quick, I'll just recap a couple big, big ones. Um, Springfield Armory has been, you know, kind of um, demonized as being anti second amendment for some things that happened um, back in 2016. At mm-hmm. Yep. At the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, they, they, they donate, um, uh, uh, what was it? 40,000 in political donations. Um, and every single penny has gone to Republican efforts. They have not donated any, uh, money to democratic efforts. Um, and they even gave money to, uh, Donald Trump's presidential campaign. So I put in there a couple, um, you know, notes, if there were, donations made of out of state contributions because i think political or uh presidential campaigns are a big teller of you know kind of where you're going um even more so than the, than the local um a couple other companies that were 75% or more cabela's sig uh, brownells brownells are, holy cow yeah. uh, this one really jumped out at me brownells has donated $320,000 uh over the years in all of which, like without exception, has gone to Republican efforts. Yep. Yeah. And so um, NRA is on that list and Smith and Wesson. So, yeah. and then um, companies in that middle zone were Vista Outdoors, which is a parent company for a lot of, a lot of well-known uh, brands like uh, Federal Premium, Bushnell, Blackhawk, and Savage Arms. Um, and so they gave uh, 68% to Republican efforts, um, and a little over 30%. And the reason why the percentages might not line up to hundred, cause there are independent, um, packs and things that they can, they can donate to. But, um, in that middle zone, the surefire was in there. Nike L3, which is EOTech, uh, FLIR, H and K, Kimber, uh, Lucas oil and taser. Um, but the ones obviously Benchmade made started this whole thing. Um, they had donated, um, 91% of their political donations to Democrats over the years. Um, so 33,203 has been donated to Democratic agenda. Um, so, you know, what you want to take from that, you know, is what you take, but that's open source information. Um, Companies like Camelback, which is part of Vista Outdoors, 100% has gone to Democrats. Under Armour is a huge one that really uh, is maybe, you know, uh, shocking to some people. Um, but 86% of their money has gone to the Democrats. Um, they gave 7,000, a little over 7,000 to uh, Beto O'Rourke. Mm-hmm. Um, they gave, uh, let's see couple other things just you know they had a couple different um issues or scandals if you will over the years so you can look at that that's in the in the article um apple obviously is big anti um gun and, and pro they, they've given 88 percent five million almost six million dollars uh, to democrats uh samsung and google um what, what I, I'll, I'll just wrap it up with this, okay? And you can look at the article and, and get all the other information. But Google actually donated money to Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Many, many people may not know that. Um, they gave uh, $21,921 $21, at Donald Trump. Uh, they actually gave to Jeb Bush as well. They gave $22,000. Uh, Jill Stein, the end, uh, she was green, the Green Party. Uh, they gave 44,000 Bernie Sanders. They gave 357,000, but, uh, Hillary Clinton, she made a little bit more than that, um, from them. They donated $1,614,663. So you can see why Google might be a little upset that Donald Trump won. They invested $21,921 into him. And, um, you know, they invested 2 million in other 
in other candidates. So it wasn't a really good investment on their part. But um, yeah, so, so it, I think that's what you call hedging your bets. You know, like yeah. you, you you kind of play all sides. You know, and obviously you have one side that you actually truly uh, favor and that you prefer, but you still like throw a little money in one way, so that way you can always go back and say, "Hey, we gave you, you know, this money." You know, <laughs> yeah. do, do us a favor now, sort of thing. Yeah, right? you know. Um, by the way, so a couple of things that really stood out to me, uh, Surefire, uh, you know, there, there was some heat kind of cast in Surefire's direction because of some of their donations made to Democratic candidates or Democratic uh, politicians, particularly from their district. <clears throat> Keep in mind, Surefire, I believe, is, is based in California, and uh, they're in a district that is, I, I believe, based on what I could see, pretty heavily controlled, democratically speaking, right? Uh, what what I noticed here is, and if you look at the donations, going back to 2008, you said uh, they showed no real allegiance to political party. In 2014, they gave about a third to Democrats and two-thirds to GOP. 2012, they gave uh, about 24% to Democrats, 76% GOP. 2010, they gave more to, to Democrats and less to, to the GOP. And in 2008, they gave nothing to Democrats and 100% to GOP. You know, what this tells me is that com- a company like Surefire is being, I call that strategic, with mm-hmm. the donations. I, I suspect if I was to go look at that really closely, there are very specific candidates for some very specific reasons why they feel it's important for them to donate some, some money to those candidates. Keep in mind, just because something comes up as a Democratic donation doesn't mean that that it was a anti-gun candidate. It could there there are Democrats in Congress in Congress that are pro-gun. They may not be as pro-gun as as maybe some of your other candidates, or they may it, it may still rub you the wrong way. But uh, there there may you know we have to we have to realize that there's it's not always black and white as we'd like it to make it to make it to be. Let me talk about one more thing relating to Benchmade. Benchmade uh, is based in Oregon City, like I mentioned, which is in the south side of Portland. <clears throat> They're in a democratically controlled district, right? Uh, it is not unheard of, nor is it even a terrible practice if you're just looking at it p- purely from a political standpoint. It, it, this is common practice for large companies, large corporations, to donate money to the can, to the uh, politicians that represent their district, because they want to make sure that they're friends with that politician. They may not agree with everything that politician does or is doing, but they will still donate so, so that they maybe have a little bit more weight when they send a letter to that congressman's office. Hey, we don't like what you're doing on this bill or whatever that may be. Okay, that is that is not an, an unheard of practice. Uh, it happens probably way more often than what you think. So I, I'm not saying that that means that we we should be totally okay with that. Like if you you may disagree with that, and that's totally fine. But I'm just explaining that that this is not something that I look at and go, oh my gosh, because the thing is, the reality of a company like Benchmade, and I actually believe that secretly the owners of Benchmade probably lean a little bit more left, okay? Uh, just looking at all the history and everything, I think they probably lean a little bit left. You know what? And that's that. take that for what it's worth. But it, it's not unreasonable to say that they're in a district that probably will never see a pro-gun, you know, truly out in the open pro-gun or Republican candidate uh, that, you know, so like... They're, they're looking after their own best interests, and they want to make sure that a, re- a representative or a senator that represents their area and their town is doing things that also not only on the Second Amendment front of, side, or front of things, but also on the economic side of things, uh, is doing things to bring jobs back to their community because that's important to them because that's where they're based. So I, I know like some of you are like, oh, Riley, you're so wrong on this. I'm just simply saying like that's the that's the that's politics for you. And that's what it comes down to. Love it, hate it. I think we all hate politics as, as a concept, as an idea, as a practice, as a culture. It's, it's, it's screwed up. It's really messed up, but that, that is politics at its core. All right. All right. Uh, we got to move on. So we got here now, and by the way, folks got to stick around to the end. We will be announcing the winner for this week's podcast weekly giveaway in just a few minutes, uh, announcing the winner of a, uh, what is it again? Complete Home Defense 3 DVD set. So, and if you haven't signed up, uh, if you missed out on this week's, but you want to make sure you don't miss out on next week's, make sure you go to concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize to get signed up. 
Let's jump now to this study, Matthew, uh, that shows, according to the title here, Correlation Between Mass Shootings uh, and Gun Laws. This is written by our managing editor, Josh Gillum, here at ConcealedCarry.com. He says this study falls flat. Unfortunately, I, w- I wanted to spend a little bit more time on this, but uh, we're kind of running short on time because we had a lot of other really good good topics, I think, to discuss. But uh, this article highlights this study uh, that was published just this last week. And the study itself tries to point out that, hey, they have this whole graph. In fact, those viewing live, I'll, I'll share my screen with you and you can see what I'm talking about here. Uh, and folks, of course, as always... For these news-related uh, stories and things that we share in the podcast, go to the show notes of the podcast for each episode. You'll see all these links copied in, in the show notes there, so you can go see this for yourself. Uh, so on this article, study shows correlation between mass shootings and gun laws falls flat. Uh, you see this graph that shows mass shootings per million people, okay? And so that's on the y-axis of the graph. And on the x-axis is how restrictive or permissive their laws are for those respective states. So if you're looking at the x-axis, you see definitely on the far left, on the restrictive side of things law-wise, is states like Hawaii, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, Illinois, California, Maryland. Those are probably like your big ones that are kind of grouped together there on the left. If you go look, obviously you see more often than not, states are less restrictive. They're on the permissive side of things. There's a big, big chunk of them here. And uh, so you, you you can guess which states those are. Uh, now, looking at the y-axis, we see there's a couple of outliers. Vermont, South Carolina, West Virginia, uh, which kind of surprised me a little bit there, West Virginia. Uh, you know, then you start to see like Louisiana, Kansas, Indiana, Utah, which is interesting because Utah doesn't have a lot of mass shootings. Um, North Carolina, Washington, Montana. So here's the thing. That's per, mass shootings per million people. And the graph is, it starts at 0.05 and it, it, the top end is 0.30. Okay, so that right there tells you how infrequently mass shootings occur per million people. Now, here's the thing. You have a mass shooting that happens in your state, and your state has a whopping population of three or 500,000, like like, a, like Wyoming or North Dakota, <laughs> or or your state has a million or maybe two million people. Like Utah, I think, has two, two and a half million. Maybe it's three million now. Still not the hugest population, populated state. Uh, you, you only need like one shooting and within a certain time frame, and you're going to be fairly high up on this chart, right? Uh, so yeah, Vermont doesn't have a very big population and they probably had one little thing happen and that put them at the very top of the chart in terms of frequency. So, so we have to take that into context. And here's the thing. I think anytime we take statistics of something that happens as infrequently as a mass shooting, which is in, in fact infrequent, uh, when you're looking at the statistics and you try to find correlation to things there, I think that's really hard to do because it's not something that happens every week or even every month. It happens a couple of times a year. So, it, you know, for, for most 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 places. Uh, so, I mean, we can look at a place like California. It's fairly low on this mass shootings per million people, right? And it's also fairly restrictive. So they take something like that and they go, ah, you see, because California is more restrictive gun law-wise, they have fewer mass shootings per million people, right? Ah, because Hawaii is so restrictive and they have hardly ever any you know, mass shootings there. Well, that there's got to be correlation there. But then also go and look at a state like, let's, just, let's use South Carolina as an example. Not a huge state population-wise, but they had that church shooting. It was really bad, mm-hmm. right? And so, bam, boo, they shoot up to the top. Okay, so it only has to happen once, and you throw everything off in a big way. I think as you're looking at this chart. Now they say they tried to, you know, use certain I don't know uh, what's the word comparisons. They tried to use some of their control type data and, and you know try to make this all make sense. But I still see it's a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Um, yeah. Josh did a really good job and looked at statistics of violent crime rate in the U.S. in 2017 by state. And if you look at that, you'll see there's like zero correlation between gun laws and violent violent crime. Pretty much is what is how I read that. 
now, I generally believe that permissive gun laws, meaning citizens are able to carry a gun and, and, and use it in self-defense, uh, I think can have an impact on violent crime. But that's not always the case because there's just so many factors that, that are involved in what influences violent crime. You know what I mean? So uh, you take a, a city like New York City. They have the most amazing, as far as, I'm not saying they're the best police department in the world, but they have an amazing police department because they have so many police officers in a relatively small area uh, and they and, and they're you know, they work really hard on busting crime, you know, and just and being a presence everywhere and being on top of everything. And so New York crime, violent crime rate is pretty low for the size of the city as it is, right? And that has probably more to do with their law enforcement practices than it does with their restrictive gun laws, right? Washington, D.C., very restrictive, but it's at the top of the violent crime rate in the U.S. Now, I know that doesn't come as a surprise to those of us that are pro-2A, but then look at Alaska. Alaska is the number two highest violent crime rate. Now, Alaska doesn't have a huge population, so it doesn't take a lot to really influence that number in a negative way. But I think there's some things culturally and even environmentally with Alaska that might impact that violent crime rate. And the fact that law enforcement is for some areas of a long ways away. So, so there's maybe, you know, it's a little bit more challenging for there to be things done the same way in Alaska as it relates to whether it's gun laws or whether it's law enforcement practices that would have an impact on reducing that violent crime rate. All right. So it's really hard for us to, I guess what I'm getting at is to take a study like this. And of course this is being proliferated everywhere in the media that look, mass shootings happen in States that are less restrictive in gun laws um, that's going out, and that's what people see, and that's what people hear. But it's not that simple. Sorry, I just spent a lot of time talking about it. Your your turn. No, I couldn't add anything um, more than you know uh, what I've been saying, and it's exactly what uh, Jared uh, Jared uh, Holmes commented in the comments. Is he says statistics can easily easily be manipulated uh, by which information and how you use it, and that's the that's the danger of resting your whole argument for something based off of a study or based off of a chart or a statistics that is the, 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 the problem that you're trying to analyze is so much more complex and has so many more factors than what this one study looks at or that one study. So on either side, you know, if, if you say, well, uh, states with the, with the, uh, least amount, least amount of gun control has, have the lowest crime rates. Well, your, your argument is bogus because it's not true. Alaska is contrary to that. If you say it the opposite way, you know, district, uh, the DC, then you're wrong. So either, either argument that somebody makes using this statistic alone that is, can be easily refuted by the other side. So just, um, understand that it's far more nuanced than that. Um, and, and so you really have to look at, a lot of different factors when you're factoring in what leads to mass shootings or crim crime or, or violent crime for that matter. And then how is it tracked and what is it? What's the, de what's the definition of it? And so, uh, yeah. yeah, that's pretty much all I can. I mean, you, yeah. you nailed it. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks for telling me I nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tris says criminals don't fear laws. They fear an armed populace. I, I, I do think there's something to that, but not again, it's not always still even that simple, but I do think there's definitely something to that. Uh, and also there was a comment here. Let's see. Oh, oh uh, Matthew said correlation is not causation. Yes, that is absolutely true. They're saying from this study that there is correlation. Uh, they're certainly not saying there's causation, but they are saying there's correlation, but I'm, I'm not even so sure that there's even correlation. But anyway, what do I know? These researchers are way you know smarter. They have PhDs and stuff. <laughs> um alrighty, so uh let's see here. What's this story? Oh yes. So there's this uh, story from Walter Firearms. Shoot it, love it, buy it.com is a website. You might want to go check it out. Walter is really making this big push. And I think they're really making a lot of headway into the American market, especially since they started, I think, listening more to American buyers, meaning using a, a traditional push-button mag release when they started putting those on pistols. I think their latest uh, Q5 steel match gun looks really amazing and really promising as a competition gun. They have launched a program uh, 
that it uses a uses vouchers to basically give you the opportunity to buy a Walter pistol, try it for 30 days, and if you don't absolutely love it, then you can you can get your money back. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, very unique. Very aggressive, I would say too. So shoot it, love it, buy it. Shoot it, love it, buy it dot com to learn more. How about that? Very cool. And Matthew, tell us uh, about this uh, recall on the Smith and Wesson M and P fifteen twenty twos. Yeah, so um, basically these are um, your basically a, a AR platform that shoots a twenty two um, uh, rimfire. And so um, the rifles and pistols manufactured before February 1st, 2019. So, um, yeah, they're going to replace your bolt and there's a problem with the bolt. So there's a video that we connected or attached that you can see what the issue is, how they're going to replace it, and uh, where you can go to check and see if your individual firearm has been uh, uh, recalled or affected by this. Yeah. It, basically, the issue is, by the way, is that apparently there was there they they think there may have been a batch of these guns that were manufactured that had a little uh, something out of spec uh, with the breech, and basically allows that in some cases they've had two two guns that have done this that have gone fully automatic because realize that we're talking about twenty two long rifle which is a rim fire round, so if the if the rim of the round is compressed suddenly and sharply then that will fire the round, right? So uh, basically something wasn't recessed enough or wasn't manufactured quite right to where a couple of these guns have gone fully automatic uh, when firing because the bolt would close and would pinch the rim without the firing pin hitting it just yet, and that would fire off the round, and so it would just keep keep going. So that's, that's pretty scary. Uh, so Smith & Wesson has got this uh, uh, recall put out, and it, this is, in fact, a recall. Uh, so you should, if you have an M&P 15-22 model uh, rifle, you should look into this and see if your uh, rifle is affected by this. And if so, you need to uh, send it in for repair. Uh, basically, the way you would do this is you would take your Smith, your M&P 15-22, uh, find the serial number, and you go to this website. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, it's, it's located on Smith & Wesson. You probably will be able to find a link to it from their homepage as well but they have a serial number verification tool. So you can plug your serial number into this and uh, search, and they'll tell you whether yours is affected or not and whether you need to, and then what you need to do to send it in if it is, in fact, uh, affected. All right? So there you go. I think that brings us to the, a wrap here, uh, closes up the uh, news stories for today. And so what we are going to do next now is get to our announcing our winners or a winner, excuse me, it's one winner per week on the Tuesday episodes of this week's giveaway. Uh, let's see here. I got to get over here to the right page. And so this week's winner wins a copy of the Complete Home Defense 3 DVD set. And we got 319 entries. That's great, guys. Uh, yeah, awesome. Bunch of you in here. Okay, so a lot of folks watching right now, I hope, have a chance to win. And any any one of you listening, hopefully you signed up and you have a chance to win. So let's see here. I am going to get ready to pick a winner. We need a drum roll. Oh, yeah. So here we go. Winner of a complete home defense three DVD set from us here at concealedcarry.com, Cami C. Oh, yeah. Cami Chamberlain. Oh, you just, you just, yeah. She's here. She's here. I know she is. <laughs> uh, just so folks know, on our Tuesday announcement of, of giveaway winners, uh, we generally don't give full names because we are respectful of Oops. everyone that that submits uh, a uh, entry. Uh, we, we respect your privacy, okay? So uh, unless we have your permission now, Cammy, I'm sure doesn't mind. So because I sorry, I, I think she's probably super excited actually right now. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. Excellent. Awesome. Congrats, Cammie. She's been uh, very active on the Facebook recently and also listening to the podcast. And she is also a Guardian Nation member. So we're excited to see that Cammie is a winner this week uh, of the uh, DVD set. So congrats, Cammie. As we wrap it up here, 
A reminder that today's episode is made possible by Ammo Supply Warehouse. Go check them out. Give them some love. AmmoSupplyWarehouse.com. They are good people. They ship really fast, and they sell ammo for ridiculously good good prices. And they don't sell really junk ammo. So yes, you can probably go out there and find ammo that's technically cheaper because it's cheaper, crappy, steel-cased stuff. Uh, they sell good stuff, quality stuff. Brass case ammo is... They, they sell, I think, about as cheap as you can find anywhere for brass cased ammo. I've priced a lot of them. So, AmmoSupplyWarehouse.com. I, I prefer to only shoot brass cased in my guns. I do shoot steel, you know, from time to time. But, uh, you know, if I can get br- brass cased ammo for almost as cheap as steel, then I'm going to shoot it because it's just better. And then also, CCW Safe. Go to concealedcarry.com forward slash CCW Safe. Learn more about CCW Safe. And if you are in need of self defense insurance, then uh, that might be something that, that CCW Safe you might find has something just for you. All right. So with that, folks, that brings us to a conclusion of today's episode. And uh, so with that, a reminder to train right, train often and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.